Welcome to Stupsin. Stupsin is a series of Dharma talks by Anthony Osler, Dai Chong Osho, the guiding teacher at Poplar Grove Zendo in South Africa, and a former Zen monk. The talks draw from traditional Zen teachings and koans to make them relevant wherever we live and whatever life we lead. If you feel inspired by these teachings and would like to make an offering to support Stupsin, you can go to our website, stupsin.co.za, to find out how. Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see you. It's wonderful to know that you're there somewhere uh, behind my screen or under my keyboard. This morning, I would like to just introduce people to Poplar Grove, either those who haven't been here or those who've been so long ago that they wonder how it is. So what I can tell you is this morning, uh, I let out the dog who raced around and I let out the ducks who are still standing on top of their ice-bound pond waiting for the ice to melt. And that'll probably happen at about 11 o'clock or so. But they're terribly patient. They just sit as if there's nowhere else to go and wait for the ice to slowly melt. It seemed to me to be an important lesson of some obscure kind that we have here. And it was just wonderful to watch them. The one thing I did notice about the ducks is that they don't squabble when they're standing on the ice waiting for it to melt. They just stand on the ice waiting for it to melt. And they don't seem to be bothered with each other in quite the same way as they do in their house. And then I need to tell you that yesterday afternoon I sat in the sun, I switched off all machines and engines and electronics and sat in the sun from where I heard a strange humming or beating sound. And overhead there was a gathering, kind of a convocation of crows at least three or four dozen of them, which I've never seen before. And they weren't settling to eat, they were just hanging around in the air above the house. And then I realized that the beating came from locusts, huge swarms of locusts surrounding us. And as they flew up into the blue sky with the sun behind them, all their wings were just radiant with the backlighting of the sun. And it looked like this extraordinary display of this light show, this moving light show. And, of course, we know that when they settle on the ground, they will eat everything green in sight. And that maybe that's a a necessary part of, of our ecosystem here. But at that moment they looked like angels. Uh, it was exquisite. 
and no real sound, just the beating of these thrumming wings and the and the call of the crows circling. So you may wonder why I am looking into a a screen on my laptop and telling you all about this. And I think it's because my life is my practice. I don't feel as if the practice that we have here is in any sense separate from the life we lead. It sounds a bit cute maybe to say my life is my practice, but sometimes one really feels it. And in a, in a perhaps more um, idealized way, it feels like this is the lineage in which I practice. The lineage of my own life, whatever it may be, is my practice. I don't have to go to a special place. I don't have to be a different kind of person. I don't have to be nicer or more good or worse, for that matter. I just have to come as myself into this life that I find I'm surrounded in. And that feels to me as if it's the primary lineage in which I practice. The lineage of justice. The lineage of what is this? This open field in which, um, in which I live. And the sheer ordinariness of one's life is the site of our practice. There's really nothing else we can do. We have no, no other choice about it. Uh, I'm talking about my life, but you have your own life, your own set of things that you find difficult, the th own set of things that you find beautiful, your own sufferings, your own releases, your own friends, your own house, your own cushion, your own buttocks on the cushion, your own cup of coffee. If we don't practice inside the very moment of our life, where, where else are we going to practice? In one way, the word practice as something monastic and special is a kind of a, a distractive device. It feels more entertaining, I think, to to think of ourselves as doing something special in our practice. But if we miss the ordinariness of all of us sitting on our chairs, looking at screens, uh, listening to talk, that is your life at this moment. And how will we honor it? That's the question we bring.
How will I honor this moment? Of course, we have a, a number of different kind of lineages that we are part of. And sometimes we focus on one rather than another. But we all come from families, from cultures. We speak particular languages. We, we have absorbed attitudes and comments from our parents and grandparents and neighbors and siblings that have somehow shaped this life. And particularly in South Africa, where we have such a, a torrid, divisive uh, background politically, we've all been part of that. And whether we bring uh, resentment and anger, or whether we bring shame and denial, whatever we may bring, is part of our lineage, part of what we have received from this world, as it were. And our question is not to put a full stop behind it and say, this is my difficult life, but to put a comma behind it and say, what now? How can I honor this life that I find myself in, that I appear not to have chosen, but which is mine nonetheless. How can I take whatever privilege I have received and honor that? So that all the threads of my life that have, have appeared from different sources uh, can make up a richness that is ourselves. In terms of, of Zen practice, and people do sometimes ask this, um, at Poplar Grove, what lineage do we follow? From an obvious point of view, from the the outside, as it were. Um, I was a monk with a teacher called Sasaki Roshi, who was an elderly Rinzai Japanese Zen teacher. And that was a particularly old-fashioned mountain monk monastic experience. in which I progressively thought everyone was mad, then I thought I was mad, then I thought madness is not really a problem, and then I didn't notice it anymore. <laughs> After that, um, I came back to South Africa, and there were no teachers traveling from the tradition in which I practiced, so I... I uh, made contact again with the, the Korean Zen school, the Kwanom school of Sun Sang, uh, Zen master De Sun Sanim. And he came out here and we wandered around South Africa with him 
and I had Margie and I had a uh, six-month-year-old, six-month-old child with us who travelled, and she spent the time rubbing Daesun Sunim's bald head, and he spent the time rubbing her bald head. And we thought that was a fine kind of practice to be involved in. Anyway, Daesun Sunim would then sent uh, his successor, who was a man called Subong, who practiced with us for a few years. He died uh, in interview, dangerous job interview. And after that, we spent a few years in kind of family practice. And then we connected again with uh, Zen Master Day Guck at Furnace Mountain, Kentucky, who offered us an opportunity to practice there. And and eventually uh, gave a teacher's transmission to both uh, Margie and myself. And all of the teachers in the Korean lineage had also studied with Sasaki Roshi, and they were all friends. So formally, that is my uh, lineage. That is the lineage of Poplar Grove Zendo that it's a kind of blend of formal monastic Japanese style and the Korean style blended together and that everyone is a friend. That's also part of the lineage. That in a way this practice is summed up as an act of friendship, as an act of meeting as an act of uh, giving oneself to whoever's in front of us. On a screen like this morning, or face to face, or often with the tree in front of us, or the sun on our head, and the earth below us. So in a sense, this kind of lineage um, has informed the practice that we have here, which we've adapted in COVID to, uh, to a reduced number of people who can practice together face-to-face -face without masks and maintain the kind of distance that is uh, recommended. So in the evenings and in the mornings, we gather together for an hour. We have a kind of a zendo service, if you like. We open the altar, we chant, we bow, we sit, and we go to bed. In the evening, in the morning, we do the same, and we get out and walk. So that is a formal a formal time of practice where we put aside our likes and dislikes and just become one with the ritual in the zendo. It's a kind of respect we show. We dress in a certain way, we follow certain gestures, we sit still, we bow, we chant together. 
it's one, one aspect of that is that we are simply putting down our preference mind and giving ourselves to the formal practice. Outside of that, we walk in the felt, we cook our food, we clean our rooms, we read, we sleep, we take responsibility for our own practice so that we're not always needing someone to teach us, someone to guide us, but that we learn what is not that um, obvious a skill for many people, the ability to sit in the felt and be patient and see what happens. And there's a way that we connect with the felt lineage of our practice here by simply showing a great respect, by sitting down under a tree in the poplar grove and seeing what life happens around us and being part of that unobtrusively uh, belonging there so that our practice has a formal aspect it has an informal aspect and in all of it there will be uh, I, let me just add there will be talks and interviews and things like that for those who stay long enough or who would like it but essentially we're taking responsibility for our own practice. We are finding out how to practice amidst the very ordinariness of our life, our cooking, our cleaning, our sitting, our walking. And we are taking part in a communal, supported, uh, formal Zen activity. And Essentially, we don't have to uh, complicate anything. It's just the same as the life that you may live at home. That there are times when you uh, just find yourself in your normal day and there are others where you may take on a formal practice. You may listen to talks, you may read books, you may do your zazen at home. But even our zazen here is something very simple and ordinary. It's just being willing to sit down in this moment of my life and see what happens. It might be worth just looking at all of this through what we call the, th the three refuges which we chant every evening. I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. We have a wonderful little wooden Buddha at the, on the altar in the, in the Zendo. It was given to me by Louis van Leeuwen, who, was, uh, an, who is an old friend of mine. Anyway, that little figure sits there and sometimes people ask a lot of questions about it. But essentially, Buddha is just 
about being awake. The Buddha is the one who opens his eyes, or as we chant every morning, opens her eyes. That the Buddha is the Buddha is the, the archetype of being awake. And not in a romantic sense that this guy looks peaceful even when all hell's breaking around him. But it's much deeper than that. It's the willingness to be awake and balanced in the midst of whatever life brings us. And sometimes it brings us great sorrow. And sometimes it brings us great laughter and friendship and sometimes great peace. But when we take refuge in the Buddha, it doesn't mean hiding behind some romance. It means embodying the willingness to, to be awake, whatever comes. So the, the, the anxiety that people often have about needing their zazen or their meditation to produce a peaceful experience or to have uh, something particular happen uh, is it, just a sign that we're holding on to some idea of how life should be. When we have no idea of what life should be, or at least we're not led by that, then already there's a kind of a relief and a sense that, that I'll be with whatever comes as best I can. And sometimes I fail to be with whatever comes, and I be with that. I wake up with that, inside of that. And that our meditation practice, our, our zazen, is the willingness to be present and is the willingness to, to live the life that we, that we have. Not to seek a specific kind of experience or carve out a, what we think may be a safe niche for us but rather to go the other way into an embodiment of our life, the life that we have. And in that we find an intimacy with our world. And in that we have the opportunity for the, the mind that contracts us and attaches uh, us to things and to... The, the mind that believes what we think, the mind that believes what we feel and gives it uh, great importance, the mind that sees problems and then needs solutions, that kind of mind that kind of separates us from our, our life just has a chance to, to, to fade for its edges to be less uh, bold and strong. And for us to be intimate with this world in a, in a very robust and, and uh, 
necessary way. So that's what we call taking refuge in the Buddha, finding our center in this life, in this moment of our life. Taking refuge in the Dharma, which is the second of the refuges, uh, just builds on from there. When the figure of compassion, to use the wording of the Heart Sutra, when the figure of compassion opens her eyes, what does she see? She sees what's in front of her. She sees the screen. She sees the tree. She sees the sky and the dog. She sees the traffic. She sees the politicians on television, those of you that have television. It's this world. And in our zazen, in our practice, the more intimacy we have with this world, the more we can put down our own ideas and just connect with the world in, in, in some kind of intimacy, living out the Buddhist teaching of interconnectedness. That is taking refuge in the Dharma, the truth of my life at this moment, the truth of our life at this moment. If the, t the, the embodiment tradition, which is really what we stand in, is about finding our life in this moment, very simple and from there comes the last refuge I take refuge in the Sangha I take refuge in the Sangha is about the community of practice the community of practitioners but when our life and our practice are being with whatever our life brings then our Sangha, our practice community, includes whoever we are with, whoever's shoes we are standing in. It includes the person who puts petrol in your vehicle, the person that uh, knocks on your door uh, on a Sunday morning, the children making noise upstairs, the kettle that's boiling, electricity that may or may not go off. That is your Sangha. That is our Sangha. Nothing is excluded. No person is excluded. No event or tree or rock. And when we come to Poplar Grove to practice, All I can say is, thank you for coming. Let me show you our life here. And in that way, Margie and I are your hosts. In that way, our lineages draw in towards each other. And together we have an opportunity 
to 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 find our life to find the sufferings that we bring with us to find the the relief from suffering and eventually to be able to be free to be free in the midst of our suffering and difficulty to be free in the midst of our laughing and friendship and delight and the willingness to move between all the different facets of our life and make it whole and genuine and authentic. Someone wrote to me um, a character from one of one of the, the, the books, I think in Zanzi Zen, a chap called Raj, who's a colleague and friend of mine from uh, Kimberley when I used to go there. He wrote the other day saying he was traveling in Kimberley and he was behind a truck with a whole lot of women with uh, bags that they were picking up stuff in the streets, obviously, street cleans of some kind. And these women just talked and joked and laughed behind them, uh, laughed between themselves. And he was driving behind them in his rather fancy car. And he was so pleased for them. And he kept on hooting and flashing his lights so that he could let them know that he was enjoying what they were doing. And eventually he said, but they, they didn't pay me any attention at all. And I sit here, the sad old Indian in my fancy car, and all I can do is just enjoy the fact that those women are happy by themselves without me. So that was, <laughs> that's the kind of absurd life we live in. It's full of unexplained wonders and, and horrors. And we're all just doing our best. We're doing our best to make this life meaningful so that we can stand up and lift our head. And amidst all the devious, terrible mistakes and shortcomings that are part of us, that there is also this that it is just wonderful to sit talking to you in this rather obtuse manner that I don't understand and still feel the gratitude to have you all part of my life. Thank you so much. <laughs>